You're listening to the City World Radio Network, high-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world, www.cityworldradio.com. Technic- technical issue. Please stand by. Good evening, and welcome to Morph Mom Moments. What an exciting night we have tonight. First of all, we're not sitting in a studio, but we are live from Summit, New Jersey, at the COCO, a co-learning and co-working space that's just amazing and has just opened up in Summit, New Jersey. And we're in a room full of amazing women with amazing guests and amazing men are here as well. Uh, and we're very, very excited. To, to have the show tonight with my two amazing guests, who I'm about to introduce momentarily. Um, but before I uh, jump into that, for those of you on air who are joining us again, thank you for coming back, and please continue to do so. Uh, and for those of you who are new to Morph Mom tonight, and those in the audience tonight that are new as well, and uh, I apologize if you're familiar with my story, but I do want to just share it with those who are joining us for the first time and don't know what they're getting themselves into right now. So basically... Uh, my name is Kathleen Smith. I founded Morph Mom about seven years ago. I'd been a prosecutor. I'd stopped to raise three kids. Always thought I'd go back. Wasn't going to work out. They didn't want me back. <laughs> like, well, now what? So it's a pretty distressing time. You lose your confidence. You kind of lose your direction. You lose what, uh, what's there. What is next? And how do you figure out what's next and what you want to do? So rather than reinvent the wheel, I started Morph Mom, which is M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M for those of you listening on air. Um, and basically with the idea, rather than reinventing the wheel, I was going to go out and find women who had sort of been through this experience, had figured out what to do, had gone through it, had taken the steps, that would share the steps, and many times would share the things that didn't work. Because I think that's one of the most important things to learn in this journey. First of all, you feel a lot less lonely when things don't go right, but also to learn what not to do. So that's how the journey began. I started a website, and it was called Morph Mom. As I said, I traveled the country. I interviewed thousands of women all over the place, sharing these stories by video interview. Since then, we've sort of uh, morphed ourselves. Where, And at the time, it was women, moms, going back to work. But along the way, women would say, well, I'm not a mom, but I have a story that could really help. Or I'm a mom, and I never left work, and my story could really help. So... That morphed into really sharing women's stories to help to, about how they took their next step, to help others trying to figure out what their next step would be and how they could go about and take that next step. So today, again, we have morphed. We now really focus on this radio show, which is live every Thursday night, and it's a podcast on iTunes when I get my act together and get it up there tomorrow. But clearly, you're all going to want to listen to this again. So you go right to iTunes, more Mom Moments podcast, because you're going to want to not listen to me. You're going to want to hear from my guests again. Um, so the, the radio show is live every Thursday night. We have classes. They're called Next Step Classes. They're amazing. They, uh, they're a two-day uh, journey about trying to figure out what's next for you. We do small groups. Women come together and really do open up. They're created by Lisa Berkery. It's just an amazing thing that she's done. Um, and then we follow up after the class with a plan of action and professional headshots. When is the last time many of you had a professional headshot or wanted to get a professional headshot? Terrifying. Um, so they're, they're great. And you can find out about those on the website. We have conferences. We just finished our conference a few weeks ago in Westfield, New Jersey. It was sold out. 
so crazy. We don't take any credit for that. It's purely the speakers, the amazing women who come to hear the stories. And um, stay tuned because our next one is going to be in June. Um, we, uh, we're going to announce the place soon. So if you visit the website, morphmom.com, you'll know where it's going to be. And, uh, we're very excited to announce the launch of the club and starting late April, May 1st, maybe a little bit earlier, I don't know, we will be officially launching our new online community. So it's sort of like, you know, you hear these stories, you, you go to a conference, you're inspired, you take a class, you're really inspired, but then you've got lag time. What happens when you need help and you have nowhere to go? So what we started was an on, we are starting an online community called the club, and through the club we'll have video interviews very similar to what we do, actually with the conferences and classes. It'll be virtual, so we will have virtual webinars, virtual or, you know video taping, video uh, interviews, curated content, and we have an online closed community where you have twenty four seven access to speak with other women. And I don't know when you always have that opportunity. So that was a big thing that we found when people left. They said, well. We have an idea, but where do I go? What happens next? So that's Morph Mom in a nutshell. And I apologize for the long introduction, but I, I always have to sort of explain what it is we do. And for those interested out there, it's morphmom.com, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com. And welcome to, to the, the community and to join us. Now, without further ado, and I'm sure everyone's saying, okay, get on with it. I want to know why we really are here tonight. I am thrilled and honored to introduce our guest tonight, first of which... Uh, Juan No Yusadi, who's the author of Monkey Bridges and Bon Me Sandwiches, From Saigon to Texas. She's a finalist in the Publisher Weekly Annual Writing Contest and has, ed- has had essays published in The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Washington Post, and The New York Times, just to name a few. And I want to introduce Nicole Smith, who is the chapter leader of the New Jersey chapter of Room to Read, she, uh, it's, which is a combination of the science and magic of learning to read. Uh, they've benefited over 16 million children in 16 countries, and the goal of 2020 is to now reach 18 million. So it's a pretty insane accomplishment that they've made and an unbelievable goal that they have ahead of them. So again, we're thrilled and honored to have you here tonight. Um, I'm first going to start with Juan, and I uh, I was just explaining to him, you'll hear that Juan wrote this amazing memoir of her journey coming here from Vietnam when she was 11, 12 years old, and uh, from refugee camps to taking a boat to get over here from exile. Um, I admit, I had to do a little bit of uh, Googling on Vietnam history. <laughs> my, my history is a little bit weak, as I learned, especially when I was doing it today. So just a basic, very basic overview um, would be, basically a decade, many decade-long war between the North and South, capitalism versus communism. And finally, in 1975, Saigon fell to the North. And this is where Juan's story or memoir sort of comes to be. So tell us about your life back in Saigon, a little bit prior to the fall of Saigon, and what happened following that. Um, Kathleen, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on Morph Mom. Really, what a wonderful platform for women to come together to share and, you know, our stories and connect with each other. And so thank you so much. Um, So um, I was born in Vietnam, and my parents, actually me and um, six of my siblings were born in Saigon. And my parents were businessmen. They they were owners of an auto parts business in Saigon. And as the Civil War in Vietnam raged on, and when South Vietnam collapsed in 1975, um, Vietnam fell under communism, and private enterprise private enterprise was outlawed. 
and there, so the business was confiscated, and our house was taken away, and we were essentially homeless, and the choice was either exile or prison. And so, um, you know, there was really no choice. So we were exiled to a small farming village in the countryside, um, the Mekong Delta, the rice bowl of South Vietnam. And and that's really where um, the, 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 the start of my, um, a big chunk of my memoir begins. And so we stay there. And in essence, we were immigrants in our home, you know, in our homeland. We were displaced to this town where everything about us was different. You know, our clothes, our shoes, the fact that we wore shoes. And our skin, the the fairer skin, told all the villagers, everyone there, who's been there for generations, that we were we were city folk, you know, and we didn't have the skills that matter, which were fishing and farming, and we were so we weren't exactly welcome, and we um, so like the businessmen in the um, the in the city. The farmers in the uh, countryside suffered greatly in the com- under communism as well. Their farms were taken away, and they were forced to work in these communal farms. And at harvest, the crop would be distributed equally. So in, in theory, everybody was supposed to work together, and everybody would have enough to eat. But in practice, it didn't work out like that. And our village came very close to, you know, it became from really hunger to the edge of famine. And and in times of distress, in time of desperation, people always look for scapegoats. And the um, and we were our family were really the obvious choice. You know, these for these these very uh, outsiders in this very close knit village. And um, my brothers and I were taunted at school. We were robbed at gunpoint, you know, at night. So given seeing no choice for any of us, my father decided that we had no choice really but to leave. There was We couldn't stay in the city. We couldn't stay in the countryside. So like thousands of other Vietnamese, hundreds of thousands really, um, we were part of the exodus out of Vietnam in these small fishing boats across the South China Sea. And we landed in Malaysia. And I spent a few years in, actually I spent a few, not a few years, over a year, in three different refugee camps. And then we arrived in a small town in Port Arthur, Texas. And um, that's the third part of the memoir. And then, so I guess in America, the memoir talks about the experience of this family trying to find a footing in this new land and the acclimation process. I want to back you up a little bit yeah. and talking about sort of the refugee camp experience and how bad it had been Prior to that, when you were new, you had been exiled from Saigon. You end up here, and things aren't going well. You have to leave there again. What happened when you got to these refugee camps? And was your family all together at that time? Sure. Um, you know, the, the, the journey out of Vietnam was a very perilous journey because in, it was completely, um, it was the most illegal of all illegal acts. That's as I understood it, and as everybody understood it. And if you were caught... Your, your, the adults were put in jail, your house confiscated. And that's what happened in the country. And suppose you made it out at sea, there are pirates, there are storms. So, um, so when you, um, so when you get to the, to the refugee camp, so when you would get there, right, having left such a tumultuous 
place and, and the journey itself being so tumultuous, what was it like upon arrival to the refugee camp? You know, so coming to the, yeah, when we get to the refugee camp, every, you know, this sense of relief that people have made it, you know, but then there's this, then another sense of desperation sets in because really people didn't really want us, you know, so everybody struggled to find a place to resettle. And the United States and a few other Western countries, you know, offer a um, really um, a source of salvation. You know, Australia, the uh, Canada, the United Kingdom. So um, when you guys left uh, Vietnam to go to the refugee camps, was right. the intention always to end up in America? Or what did you know or did you know at that point? Right. Was it just to get out of Vietnam? Right. Um, I, I had, uh, fortunately, I had siblings who were in America, and so we, it was our hope that eventually we would be reunited and be in America. But for many people, it was just um, the circumstances enough to, you know, force people to leave and just out of that to any land of freedom, really. So how long did you spend at the, and you were in, in a few refugee camps. It wasn't right. just one. You were in Malaysia, Philippines. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how long you were there before then leaving for America? Um, we, I was in the, um, the first camp we landed. It's really just an island in the middle of the ocean. And we, uh, we were there for, it's called the first asylum camp. We were, everybody was put on there. Um, we were there for about six months, and then we went to a transition camp. Um, and, the tr and then the third camp is where everybody who has been, um, has found a place to resettle would congregate there. So, and it's mostly the uh, settlement country is usually the, the United States. And so in that third camp, we learn English and American culture. And that's where I, at an age of 12, I learned English along with lots of other kids and the adults. And when you heard, okay, that's it, we're going to America, do you remember? I mean, you were so young at the time, but you had already had a lot, you know, lived many lifetimes. You're 11 and 12 years old and probably experienced more than most of us listening tonight. Do you remember your reaction when your family said, okay, that's it? You know, so maybe you'd become even more comfortable where you were, and now you were uprooting and heading to America. Do, do you remember that? You know, growing up in Vietnam, I always heard of America. It's this land, faraway land of, of riches and wealth, and it's a place of M&Ms, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> And so I had siblings who were in America, and every now and then they would send things back. And one of the most, you know, one of the packages that arrived to us was M&M's, and it was the first time I tasted it. And for me, that, that, that attraction was, was strong enough. And, you know, I had to go to this place. Chocolate is healing everything. Um, so do you remember then the trip to America? Like, how did, you, how did that happen? And how, how easy was it to leave the camp to get to America? Uh, how you um or hard i should say you mean the um the legal process or the emotional part of, of leaving the i think both right you know getting to america the legal immigration isn't isn't easy you know process is very long the vetting is quite rigorous you know not only do tests for uh, there's the health test you know there's the test whether you're a political refugee or an economic refugees and then there's and i guess the emotional part is very hard, too. You know, even for little kids, you know, there's that excitement that I'm going to this land, but there's always, there's also that fear that will I be accepted in America? How I, you know, what is it like that I have to speak this language that all my teachers say that it, 
very soon you're going to have to use it exclusively to make yourself understood, you know. For us, it seems surreal because when we were speaking English, it seemed like we were just play talking, you know. <laughs> so there's definitely excitement, but very much laced with fear and anxiety, at least for me, yeah. So you leave the refugee camp and you end up in a town, part Port Arthur, Texas. Right. How did you how did you end up in Texas and was that a place that many refugees were is that was a destination is that why you went there? Um, the refugees were scattered across the United States, you know, um, but in our case we got to choose that location because I had some cousins who were who already settled in the U.S. and they sponsored us and so we ended up in this, this small town in Texas, right? Which happened to have a few um, a small group of Vietnamese who were. Because it's along the coast, they, you know, which attracted a lot of Vietnamese fishermen who, uh, who were in the shrimping business. And you were just talking about, like, the fear of what it's like. You know, we're play-talking, we're here, it's not real. And all right. of a sudden you land. Do you remember, again, you were so young, you were 12 years old when you land in Texas. Um, do you remember how you were received there? And, and was it, were you, were you discriminated against? Were you received well? Do you remember that, what it was sure. like? You know, in our small Texas town, um, before 1975, I don't, there weren't any, I don't, there were hardly any Asians. And I think for a lot of the native born Americans, the Vietnam War is only, is only known through the lens of the war. And so when we, the Vietnamese who, we came, I came in 84, but the ones who came before me definitely had a much harder time. You know, they're, um, especially the fishermen, they weren't very well received. They were, the the I think the KKK held rallies and had tried to drive out those um, the the fishermen. It took a lawsuit to to to, to settle that, you know. And um, but when I came, the overt hostility was gone. But there was definitely you know that sense of 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 unease. But um, but I guess over the years I realized. That you know, it's um, but eventually we were accepted in, and we did. The people didn't know us as much as we didn't know the locals. But eventually, we came to you know, there was an understanding that the people in town, I mean, did find out about each other, and you know, and so I think it just needs time. Mm-hmm. You know, but how long did you live in Texas for? Um, I lived in Texas from, um, so I can't. I arrived in Texas in '84, and I left for. I went to Houston for college, and I, and I actually I stayed there for a long time until we left for New Jersey twelve years ago. And and prior to the show, Nicole Juan and I were talking about sort of you know the historical part of this and the war, and I kept referencing the you know the Vietnam War. And Juan, when 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 you would talk about it, it was the American War. I thought it was so interesting. And can you tell us a little bit about that? How when you came here, like when you when you speak about the American War and what the what your feeling is towards it when when the discussion comes up, like it did when we were talking about this before. Right. You know, I think war is just horrible. And, you know, the the American war, as is known, or the Viet- the American war is known in Vietnam, or the Vietnam war is known here, it's really, it was a civil war. So there were brothers fighting against, uh, on different sides. Uh, you, for instance, my father, who was very close to his older brother, he his older brother fought with the uh, North uh, Vietnamese, and he was a very high-ranking general. And my father, even though my father didn't fight in the um, in the Ameri- 
in the now I'm confused. I don't know which <laughs> war to call it in the American Vietnam War, but he has younger brothers who fought on you know on the other side on the south side, you know. So it's um so when the um after Vietnam collapsed, the brothers got together. They you know didn't talk political stuff, but it's there's definitely you know uh, an unease. You know it's a uh, so. First and foremost, it is a civil war, and then everybody's affected, and it's, it's a cast of shadows, and all the, you know, and my parents' lifetime and my lifetime. It's so fascinating, and as I said, Nicole Juan and I were talking about this before, and the historical significance of the story as well. And as I mentioned, Nicole is involved, with, very involved with Room to Read, and has been, I think, for the past nine years. And something that we were talking about, and again, we're going to come back to Juan then taking this story and writing a memoir. But how historical part, uh, the historical part of this is so interesting, but so much more interesting when it comes presented as a story, as opposed to reading in a history book. If a child would sit there and read your story and read it, it just, it's so much more impactful. And we started to talk about this a little bit. So tell us a little bit about Room to Read and how, you know, you've seen this through literature with kids, you know, how maybe you can learn history through story as opposed to maybe just the facts in a book. Um, sure. The stories always make things more interesting, like you said. And just a quick history of Room to Read. It was started by a man named John Wood, who was in Nepal on vacation. He was a, a Microsoft executive, and he saw that there was a lack of education there. He went to see the local school, and there was only a dirt floor, no pencils, no, t- no tablets, no nothing. And the headmaster of the village asked John to give them some books. So he, a year later, he returned and brought 3,000 children's books for them. Even though they were in English, the children had never seen books before. And at that point, John um, decided to actually leave Microsoft at the height of his career and start Room to Read out of basically nothing because he thought he had a skill set and had a vision and wanted to do what Andrew Carnegie did for the U.S. 100 years before. Andrew Carnegie established 2,500 public libraries in the U.S. with his mass fortune, and Room to Read has um, helped over uh, 30,000 communities have uh, literature available. So um, one of the things that Room to Read also did is that so they teach literacy, they combine the science of learning to read with the magic of loving to read. And um, I'm, I've been a volunteer for nine years. The chapter started here about nine years ago. And basically our, our role as a volunteer chapter leader is to raise awareness and funding for Room to Read programs. And um, one of the the ways that Room to Read spreads their stories is they, um, they've actually gone into the publishing business to create content, create books for children in the local languages. So it's kind of hard to learn to read if you don't even know how to speak the language. So there wasn't, um, there wasn't content available for kids in their native language. So Room to Read has gone to publishing these, um, they host writers and illustrators workshops in the local communities. So they actually create industry there and create the content, create the books, and then kids can learn to read in their local language. I, I'm just curious, one, when you were in the, speaking about the books and availability and access to books, when you were in the refugee camps, did you have, what was the access to books and was there schooling? I'm just curious now that you mentioned that. Um, I don't remember us having a lot of books, but the first two camps, the, so I stay in two camps in Malaysia. The first camp, like I said, was just an island and it was a bit chaotic because we had just come and there, it was not a lot of organization. The second camp was a transition camp, so we were there only a few months. The third camp is more organized because this is when we already knew we'd go into America. And actually, the camp was almost like actually the camp was known as the biggest ESL class in the whole world. So it was we um, yeah we learned English and American culture. I don't remember a lot of books, but I remember a lot of writing on uh, chalkboard. You know that's 
I think in places that you don't have a lot of books or access to papers and pens, chalkboard is ubiquitous and it's very helpful because you know you only need a piece of chalk and a board. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I don't remember books, <laughs> but I yeah. And now, now that was a few decades ago with that at those refugee camps. Right. Does Room to Read now provide books to current refugee camps, or is that something that they do as well? Actually, yes, they do. So Room to Read focuses on partnering with NGOs, ministries of education, and and various countries. And so one of the things that they did is they... uh, coordinated with uh, Queen Rania in Dubai or in Jordan, I think she, and they um, got some funding from them and they developed uh, four new Arabic titles and they distributed half a million books to the Syrian refugees in Jordan. So that's why now they're trying to work in Turkey and other places. So they, they partner some, some of it self-funded with uh, bringing education to girls and publishing books and teaching literacy and training librarians. And then they also, like I said, partner with NGOs and um, other ministries. And I would think a book, and we're going to discuss the book in a minute, Wands, would give such impact to these girls, both your experience, your story, and just what you did with that story. What an inspiration to these young girls who need that inspiration right now. Yeah, like we were talking before, you can't be what you cannot see, because she's got a really great story um, about uh, a network um, a person, a network anchor. So tell that story. Um, I guess in, in poor author, you know, Everybody I knew around me, every adult struggled to learn English and to get a footing in America. I didn't know anyone who was who looked like me, hair like me, eyes like mine, who could speak English well, much less loved and you know accepted by the American culture. And one day, I found her, but just by turning on the TV, you know, she was she was sitting behind the anchor desk and you know announcing that she was Connie Chung and she was going to tell. Everybody <laughs> informing the American public of the, you know, the news of the day and around the world. So, so was that when you were in Fort Arthur and Young? Yes, at that time. Right. I, so, tell us a little bit about. And in your book, you you talk about this a lot. Of, give us some of the experiences that you remember that really were impactful. Those early days in Port Arthur that right. that really stick out and right. good and good and or bad. Sure. And I guess that the the experience with Connie Chung stick out. Did stick out in that, so I was a bit uh, obsessed with her. And one day, <laughs> um, my father, yeah, I, I was known around school as a person, you know, who just had this fixation with Connie Chung. And actually, <laughs> back then, I I really didn't even know why. But I think, you know, in writing the book and in thinking about it, it I think I came to realize that it's she represented something else for me, something, you know, that could be, you know. Um, so my parents had a sandwich shop and the second part of the name of the book. And it was in one of those days where we barely had any customers. And it wasn't that rare, actually. We barely had customers on a lot of days. And so with lots of time on my hands, I decided to, I was going to do something I had never done before. I took out a sheet of paper and I wrote a fan letter to Connie Chung. And I kept it for a long time because, you know, I didn't know what to send it. Back then, you, you, there was no Google. You couldn't find out where anybody stay. But I was at the library, and I saw the address for NBC News, and I sent the letter there. And I didn't know what would come of it. But week later, a letter did come back to me, and it was a letter from Connie Chung. And she actually it was a signed autograph from Connie Chung with a little letter saying that she was glad I wrote to her, and she wished me good luck in school. And so that meant a lot to me. <laughs> 
God, I love Connie Chung now, too. Now, now she's my favorite, too. <laughs> so, all right, so tell us more stories like that, like how acclimating. And, and you know, actually, let me, let me begin with this. So you came from a very traditional background, and it had been tumultuous as well. Right. When you arrived, was it very difficult to maintain those traditions at the same time trying to adapt to this entirely new world? Um, sure. I think it was hard for the adults, and it was hard for children. Um, in Vietnam, the father was the patriarch, you know, and the mother um, is the, the nurturer, the one who stays in the home. But in America, things became very, it was just a, just trying to survive. And the mother, anybody, with mother, father, anybody would have to go find work. And then the father, I noticed with my father and others around me, they, sensed, they lost that sense of being the all-knowing father figure. And the mother didn't have time. They were, she was just too exhausted to, to, to spend time with, you know, with, with the kids. And everything around us was a struggle. You know, even when you're so tired at the end of the day, you just want to relax, you want to turn on the TV, you can't even understand what's on the TV. You know, so the sense of dislocation, the sense of loss was pervasive. And how did you handle that? So now, again, you're 12 years old. How, <laughs> what do you do? Um, I, you know, it's, um, it seems like, when I talk to readers, people tend to give me a lot more credit than I feel I deserve because if thrown into that situation, I think we all would just try to struggle because all the friends that I had, we all tried to learn English and we all had jobs after school. So I think the act that you have to survive takes a lot of the the um, the worries away because you're, you're always busy doing something. So you for, and in that you become acclimated. You sort so, of don't have time to think. You don't have time to think. And it, like the it. more you do, you know, and the more you get involved, the more you you get used to the environment. When did it feel like home, or was there a time when all of a sudden you thought, okay, I'm home? When. Um, or has it ever? I mean, I don't know. Like, you know, was there was there a time when sort of you're like, yep, this is where I'm supposed to be? Right. I think coming to any new place, you always feel like this that sense of out, being an outsider, and you don't realize how per, how just pervasive that is. How much that become part of the identity until you're forced to step outside and, and look at it. That moment I, happened for me when I was. I believe about a junior in high school. That was we had. There was this contest. It says, "Why am I Golden Triangle proud?" And the Golden Triangle is comprised of Port Arthur, Beaumont, and Orange. This is for our English class. And in writing about in writing that essay, I thought about our town, and I realized that I had been there for five years. You know, I we I see. You know, Vietnamese culture has very much become part of the town. And I think that was the first time I felt a sense of belonging. And, Nicole, I want to ask you a question about this. In Room to Read, and we were talking about sort of bringing the books to the refugee camps and bringing to these kids, have you experienced something with the kids having a hard time sort of acclimating and, and maybe through reading and through these opportunities to expand their world through the reading? Is it helping them to feel acclimated or try to? Well, I think it helps when you have a, a book to read that's in your own language, because I, I often tell people, 
you know, we, we take reading for granted. It's a, it's second nature to us. Uh, we, we read signs, we read texts, we read emails. It's, we, we're reading all the time and it's, it's given second nature. So when I go to schools and different things, I'll ask them if they know how to read and they'll say, of course we do and whatever. And then I'll give them a slide or a worksheet that's in, um, Lao or something. And, and then they're like, well, we can't read that. I'm like, well, what do you mean? You know, so, uh, so I think it's, it's something that we just take for granted. But in, in so many countries, they, they speak the language and it surrounds them on the signposts and everything. But not being able to read is limiting. You're only the only information that you gain is what someone tells you. You can't go and research it on your own, or read it from your own, or read a paper, or pick up a paper. So it's um, it's profound. The, the and you can't learn to read without. I mean, you, you can pick up language just through osmosis and being in the environment, like you learned a new language. But for reading, you have to be taught pretty much. And then that now circles around to the book that, sure. that you now take this amazing story that you have and you put it into words. So let's talk about how and when you decided to do that. And you had not been a writer prior to this, correct? I mean, clearly you were. You, you're. Wait, let me rephrase that. You're. Inc- you didn't know what amazing writer you were prior to that. I sure don't know that. <laughs> well, we I do. sure don't think that. No, we all know that now. You didn't know it yet, but it was coming. It was brewing. Okay. Um, so when did you realize this gift that you had, and how did that all come to be? Right. So you're junior in high school. You're feeling like, okay, this is right. I'm here. This is home. How many years later to you sort of took that experience, and what was what drove you to decide to write that book? Oh. <laughs> um so I never thought of being a writer because I didn't know anybody who was a writer. The closest Asian I knew was Connie Chung, you know. <laughs> Our new favorite, and, everybody. You know? And I didn't think I had what she had to be a Connie Chung. And so um, I studied economics in college, but I always loved reading. And I especially love reading about other people's stories. I love reading memoirs. And um, so after I had my children, I stay home and... In that time, I, you know, staying home, uh, it was the first time where I um, had some downtime, and I read a lot, And but I, I still didn't write. But then eight years ago, when my father passed away, I decided that um, I was very upset by his death, and I decided I'd write something about his life. And it was the first time that I seriously sat down and tried to write, and not just, you know, write and then stop after half a page or a page. Um, but it's really, really hard to, you know, write about a person's life in a thousand words, two thousand words. It took me a really long time. And after three years, I finished. And on the anniversary of his death, I decided to just send it out. To, to Actually, at first, I showed it to my siblings and relatives. And, you know, to my tremendous surprise and happiness, they really liked it. And they felt that I captured his life and I did, um, you know, it, it, it was true to his life. And so I sent it to different newspapers, and, um, you know, I got no response. But then I got this email from the Wall Street Journal that uh, the editor said that he felt that it was a, that the readers would very much enjoy it and that they so he would publish it for Father's Day, and that was 2013. And um, he was very kind, and after that he... Um, after the article was published, he suggested that perhaps there was more to the story and I should consider writing a book. Well, and again, it was Wall Street Journal? It was the Wall Street Journal. Her first article published in the Wall Street Journal. Clearly, you should be writing a book. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, So so he tells you to write a book. Is that so overwhelming? Or are you so 
sort of inspired and motivated, like, I, I got this. I can do this. Oh. You know, I, I still don't think I got this with writing. <laughs> I, so I definitely never could sell that. But it was extremely validating. It was incredibly thrilling to have that validation from somebody from the writing world who think, who could think I could write. Um, but then it was also terrifying because it took me so many years to write a short essay. And I just couldn't imagine writing a book. The essay was maybe a thousand words and a book. I read up and it says about the memoir should be between 80,000 to 100,000 words. And that's just a lot. But I just, um, but I don't know what prompted me. Actually, I do know what prompted me. Over the years, my husband always told me, Juan, you need to write down these stories, you know, but I never, I never thought I could. I never took it seriously. I think between those, that reminder in my ear and the editors saying that I could, I said, I'm going to do it. So, so that's, that's what I did. And, um, and actually, like I said, the editor was very kind. I asked if I could stay in touch and he said yes. And he gave me two pieces of advice. The first piece of advice he said was that, you know, you shouldn't write only when you feel inspired because mostly you won't write that often. <laughs> so <laughs> you should write every day. You know, you should think of it as work. You know, you do it whether you like it or not. And the second piece of advice he gave me was that you should have a target number of words a day that you write. A beginning, um, a beginning writer often strives for a thousand words. He said you can try for 500. Um, maybe in your case, 300. <laughs> and so I really took those advice, two pieces of advice to heart, and I tried to do that every day. But then um, that became a problem, too, because every day I went to bed, I would get very anxious because the next day the whole thing starts over. <laughs> and it was Groundhog Day for however long that it took me to write the book. And my husband and children can testify. It was not easy to live with a person who stuck in this Groundhog Day routine. <laughs> but I always tell the kid, remember, if, you know, the book ever finished, you know, if someone asked, said, I did have dinner for you. You know, it wasn't good, but I did put something in front of you. <laughs> so, <laughs> How long did it take you to write the book? Um, I think How many Groundhog Days? <laughs> how many Groundhog Days, huh? Um, it took about a year and a half for the first draft. Um, and then, but then there's a lot of editing after that. And, um, but I think from pen to publication was about four years. And we talked about this before. You opted to go in the direction of self-publishing the book as opposed to a publishing company. And, Nicole, can you tell us a little bit about publishing? Because I think Room to Read is involved with publishing as well. Well, Room to Read is involved with publishing as far as it goes, the children's book. Yes. In general, about publishing. Well, um, well, I'll do a plug for John's book. So John, John Wood, the founder of Room to Read, he chronicles the, um, the journey of him starting the nonprofit in a book called Leaving Microsoft to Change the World. It's a really great read, very inspirational. And then he wrote a second book called Creating Room to Read, which talks about the first 10 years and how he built the organization. So he's known as a social entrepreneur where he took an entrepreneurial attitude towards a social issue. And then the third one that he came out with last year is called uh, Purpose Incorporated, Turning Cause into Your Competitive Advantage, and talks about how um, Larry Fink, the CEO of uh, BlackRock and others are working purpose, the corporate social responsibility and things like that, into the fabric of their business model. So, um, but Room Tree, they publish in the countries where they work, and they publish the children's books only. And then, like I said, John 
has published his own books about room to read and, and around cause and uh, philanthropy. So does that answer your question? Well, did he opt, was it self-publishing as well? Versus, um, I, I think it was actually, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't quote me, but I think he did self-publish at least the first one. Maybe, maybe by the third one, he had more of a, a following and maybe he was able. Cause it's, it's a big question that we face a lot with more moms who will say, you know, I, I've got the material, I've got the book, but now what, and how much time do I devote trying to investigate this like when do i just say forget it i'm doing it myself or do i just go right in and say i'm not going to bother going down that road and going into this what did you think you might have it published and then change your mind or how did you go about doing that right you know as um as you've heard i came to writing really by accident and i came to publishing and I didn't even come to publishing i didn't even know that you know after writing that the public you know seemed part to it so when I finished the the the, the manuscript, the um, the editor stayed in touch, and he introduced me to an agent who um, read the manuscript, and he said that you know, based, um, I will take you on as a client, even though it's a very hard sell. You know, memoirs are just hard to sell, and you are an unknown um, author, a first-time author with you know, not known at all. Um, but he will, I will do my best to try to uh, sell it to different publishers. And he really did. He worked very hard for a year and a half, but um, over 40 publishers in New York and all around the country, from the big houses to university presses, all turned down the book. And uh, they said it was a good story, but it was not sensational enough to to um, to warn a um, uh, a big enough readership for their investment. And so he said that if you want to see the book in print, you have to publish it yourself. And that's when I started to look into self-publishing. So it's really, there wasn't a choice. And um, I have to, again, thank my husband. He was, uh, he's very technically um, adept, and he's um, with a great mind for learning new things. He really helped me bring the, the, the book into print. I did, you know, you know the editing, and, um, and he also helped me edit the book. Uh, so when I knew I had to self-publish, I spent the next year edit edit the book, and then I hired editors to go over it, and um, and my husband edited it, other people edited it. So it was a very well, um, it, it was a, a long process, and as 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 publishing any book would be. And for those out there um, in our audience tonight, or uh, on the on in in our listening to us right now from wherever they are around the world, um, what would your recommendation be about going forward with self-publishing? If that's the course you take, like, is there a certain number you should order? Do you get a, do you get an illustrator to do the cover? And then when you go that route, how do you market the book? How do you then, you know, it, do you do it through Amazon? Do you go through local bookstores? What is sort of that, the, the marketing approach to it? Right. Um, I think if you decide to publish a book, the cover and the content really matter. You know, you want to produce a book that is well written, well edited, well well produced as you can. And so, if you, you know, writers already don't make any money. But if you spend any money, I think it should be used if you can with editing and a cover design. So those are, and um, and. Marketing the book is just hard. If you ask, I, even a traditionally published book, marketing is hard. 
So you have to really, if it's a good book, then eventually it will get traction and friends will refer to friends. So if you have good content, then the word hopefully will get out. Do you, do you recommend, um, again, for people who have these books and have published them, like, did you go, did you approach local bookstores? Did you approach sort of, you know, maybe friends, maybe have a book club and have friends gather and give and distribute some books for free? Any suggestions about that? I've made it my personal mission to have oh, everyone read Mon's book because I, I love it. And, and she's such an incredible person, incredible writer. So I've taken it upon myself to help, help her become an overnight success. And Nicole, how did you first find out about the book? So we live in the same town. I didn't realize we have kids the same age in the same schools, and it's not that big of a town, but um, I hadn't. And then so some of my friends started posting the book on Facebook and talking about her. And so because she was from Vietnam and Room to Read works in Vietnam, and I'm obsessed with Room to Read, I decided I was going to have coffee, coffee with Juan and just learn more about her and the book, and, and then we just had a great time running around together. So, Nicole, what tips would you give people out there, to, like other than Facebook? What, what else can people do to get, to get the word out about their book? Well, I think as, as good as social media is, I think you still have to have boots on the ground and go to conferences and join the Chamber of Commerce and get out there and have coffee and join networking groups. So I'm networking all the time. I'm going to coffee, I'm going to lunch, I'm going to meetings, I'm going to conferences, because, and I enjoy it. So some people may not like that as much because they're shy or whatever, but I, I'm not shy, and I love <laughs> yeah. Well, thank God you're not shy, because you're now getting 2020, you got a big job. you got to bring books to 18 million kids around the country. That's a good thing you're doing that. Um, so, okay, so going back to this, you, you went the self-publishing route, you got the book out, Nicole is helping, and we're all helping right now. We're all going to get this book right now. Um, but let's talk about the book itself. And, and again, we, we talked about a few stories, but can you share a few of your favorite stories in the book? And there was one that I, I just like the one about your landlord, the waters. Will you sure. tell us a little bit about them? Sure. <laughs> so when we first came to America, we had, you know, very little English and very little money. And my parents had five children still living at home. Finding a place to live wasn't easy. And a few landlords in our town made it clear that, you know, Vietnamese tenants weren't exactly welcome. And so um, it took a while, but my parents um, found this three-bedroom house that they were within their budget, but they had to fush the number of kids they had, you know, cutting down five to two. And I realized the two they cut out were me <laughs> and uh, my older brother because the landlord made it clear or imply, well, both. I wasn't there, but I <laughs> that um, he didn't want teenagers. He didn't want kids wrecking his house, drinking or whatever. Um, so his name was Walter. And, you know, English and Vietnamese are very different. They're so different that might as well be you know, language of birds and language of fish, you know, it's just very little in common. The Vietnamese doesn't have ending sound or middle or, or sound in the middle. So Walter, it's really hard for Vietnamese to hear the L in the middle. So we called him Water. And so, and in Vietnamese, you always put a title in front of the person's name. So being the polite, you know, or not even polite, traditional Vietnamese that we are, we call him Mr. Water, even though he had no idea why we call him that. <laughs> and then his wife's name was Loretta, and that was just too many syllables <laughs> and with no common English words. So we call her Mrs. Water, you know, <laughs> and... 
neither one of them ever corrected us, so that stuck, you know, until even when I could hear the L very clearly and could reproduce it very well, I still call him Mr. Water until the day I left for college. <laughs> and, and is it true that even though you were not technically on the lease at the time, you actually had a lot of interaction with the Waters? I did. Um, <laughs> how did you explain that? <laughs> I somehow was the interface between our two families. I was nominated that. And I think my father, uh, I liked knowing that I, I liked doing things to please my parents. And nobody wanted to do it, so I must have volunteered <laughs> the first few times and I got stuck. But I dreaded these interactions. We, I either had to give them rent or tell them something in our house broke. And the rent were easy because just headed over and leave. But the, <laughs> but the, the you know, the something in a house broke and who's going to pay? That was terrible. <laughs> he just, my English, as you can tell now, and I hope, and everybody's been very nice and forgiving me. My English starts to sound Vietnamese when I'm tired or when I'm stressed or when I'm nervous. And this is me after 30 some years of English. Back then, it sounded completely Vietnamese. <laughs> and he was this gross Texan in, you know, in a wheelchair, smoking cigarette, gravelly voice. I didn't understand him. He didn't understand me. <laughs> so <laughs> a lot of time, he didn't need any more of my hand-waving, Vietnamese-sounding English. He just uh, <laughs> he was just put up his hands, and that was my cue. I would run ahead to our house, tell my brother she's coming, and, <laughs> and then he would be right behind me. So. And I think you mentioned that too early. So not only did you come to America, but all the different accents in America. So you've got the East Coast to Texas to wherever you're going. How was it with the Texas accent? I mean, it's a pretty thick accent. Did you did you have more trouble with that as opposed to others? You know, I had no point of reference. To me, that was America. That was English. You know, <laughs> I went from in in the refugee camps. Our English teachers were all Filipinos, so they have very so I thought that was English, and then I came. <laughs> so then I came to Texas. I thought that was, you know, it, it sounded different. <laughs> so I just assumed that was uh, American English. I didn't realize actually until I left for college, and I remember it was at at, um, at Rice that I met all these people from all over the U.S. And they, I was telling you know this guy i remember he was my next door neighbor and i said well i'm fixing to go to dinner and he said whoa what a he said what a sylvan bell you are and i said well i i didn't think i was the bell or southern i didn't know which part was more inaccurate and so you know slowly i i, I yeah so and I have to ask, actually, my, I promised my husband I'd ask this, too. We were talking about, because he loves Vietnamese food, yeah. a banh mi sandwich, which is in the title of the book, and her father opened a banh mi sandwich shop in right. Texas. Can you tell us about that? And also just how difficult it had to have been for him to not just arrive in Texas with the family and dealing with everything, opening a sandwich shop in the middle of it. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. When my father was um, um, a very successful businessman in Saigon, and he was actually not just one, he was a serial uh, entrepreneur. He had, at the, uh, right before South Vietnam collapsed, he was the owner of several businesses. And so I think he had that gene in him. In America, we worked very long hours at a bakery, and I think somewhere in those long hours, he decided that if I work this hard, I'm going to do something of my own. This dream of having his own business returned. And 
none of us wanted that because, you know, he wanted to open a sandwich shop in a place where few had heard of or tasted a banh mi, but he was sure that, you know, it's going to do well. It has, it did well in Vietnam. A Vietnamese uh, banh mi sandwich is a French baguette with a thin, crispy crust um, filled with roast meat and all kinds of yummy vegetables, pickled carrots, cucumbers, cilantro, um, jalapeno peppers. Actually, in Vietnam, it's these really spicy red peppers. <laughs> um, but in America, it's jalapeno peppers um, and a little bit of soy sauce. So he thought he would, he, he would use a joke, I'm going to put McDonald's out of business. Or, <laughs> <laughs> we will, you know, we didn't know what to say to that. But <laughs> I personally, I didn't want him to, I didn't want my parents to open a Russian at all because I I knew from them from their working at the bakery that owning a business is really really difficult and you know back then we didn't have a lot but for me I didn't want clothes or birthday parties or vacations I just what I wanted more than anything was for my parents to just have a regular job just a nine to five job where they come home um, you know and I, I thought that was so special like on TV the father opens the door and say I'm home you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the restaurant was the opposite of that. It would just be a continuous work, and it turned out it was continuous work, and but and we barely scraped by, but enough to where you, my parents, um, you know, we all worked at the shop, and um, and my parents, and it it um, you know it was our family income for the time that um, I was at home. I can't believe we're running out of time right now. I, I just quickly want, um, Juan, can you tell us how people can get the book, what's the best way to do that? And then, Nicole, will you tell us about uh, how they can find out more about Room to Read as well? Sure. Um, the book is available on Amazon, and um, it's, uh, it's called Of Monkey Bridges and Button Me Sandwiches. Or if the title's a bit long, you can just look up my last name. It's an unusual last name. It's my husband's last name. It's Usadi, uh, USA, D is in David, and I. And I'm sure as we're speaking, people are Googling Amazon right now sure. and getting the book because you have to. And, Nicole, tell us quickly how um, oh, oh, we have. And for those on air, you can hear we now have the book where we are sitting. So all of you need to catch up and get the book also. Um, Nicole, tell us how people can find out about Room to Read and hopefully volunteer as well. Uh, sure. And I just want to say, if you type in Monkey Bridges, it's probably going to come up. So let's <laughs> just remember that. Um, yeah, so Room to Read, it's roomtoread.org. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to get involved. And I'm a volunteer chapter leader. There's 40 chapters around the world. And I invite anybody to um, email me, rtrnicolesmith at gmail.com, or you can go on the Room to Read website and look up the New Jersey chapter. I can't thank you guys enough for coming on tonight. What an incredibly special night of radio and just so excited that, you know, this is the American dream, and everybody out there needs to hear this. And thanks to your book, we're going to hear, and thanks to Room to Read, 20 million, 18 million kids will learn about this as well and be inspired that they can share their stories as well. And it's the only way I think, you know, if nothing else brings us together, this will. So I can't thank you guys enough tonight. I can't thank the Coco enough in Summit, New Jersey, the new latest co-working, co-learning space that that hosted us tonight, and I, you can go online to the Coco to find out about it as well, thecoco.com. Um, and just one last thing, again, thank for our live audience. who has been amazing. Um, thank you. It's been very fun. Thank you to our listeners out there tonight. Again, we'll be up on iTunes podcast tomorrow under Morph Mom Moments. 
Um, and again, clearly you're going to want to hear this again. And just one quick thing, go to morphmom.com, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com, to find out where our conference is. It's a secret. You have to go to find out. It's a little bit of a tease. you got to go to morphmom.com to find out where in June, where you think it's going to be the first Monday in June, will be somewhere in New Jersey. But you got to go to find out. Um, we have. Uh, you'll find out about when our next step classes are, the dates that are upcoming. We have not one in March, and it's filling up quickly, so hurry. Go there as well. And very, again, excited for the club. Go online, again, to morefum.com. Go to the club page, and you can learn about the uh, – we have a list of the speakers that will be coming on. We have many more to come. Fun content and a great online community that we could talk about this book if you were on the club. That's what we could do. So, again, thank you, everyone, um, and we'll see you next week. Good night, everyone.